God, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit into this place, that you would manifest yourself to us, that we might behold Jesus in all of his power and glory. In his name we pray. Amen. What are we to make of this great moment known as Pentecost? Is it a faraway event? Is it an abstraction? Is it for other people? Or is this event a present reality? Well, let's enter into the second chapter of the Acts of the Apostles and find answers to these questions this morning. We see that 120 of the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ find themselves gathered together in one place. And they are gathered because the Lord himself told them to wait. He promised the Holy Spirit would come upon them. And so, taking him at his word, they waited. And suddenly, maybe in the midst of boredom and wandering thoughts, everyone was suddenly awoken to the presence of God. The sound of a mighty wind filled the house where they were, and before they could make sense of it, they saw tongues of fire resting upon one another's heads. And they lost control of themselves For the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit, filled them, taking up the presidency of their lives. And by his power, they began to speak in foreign tongues. That is, they now had the supernatural ability to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ in languages that even their own ears had never heard before. And from there, they began to preach. And what was it they began to preach? You can read it for yourself in Peter's great sermon that goes up through verse 41. But the hearers tell us what was being preached. The mighty works of God in Jesus Christ, which can be summed up in the final verse of our reading this morning. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And what is that name? The name of the Lord is Jesus, the God who saves. The preaching to those in Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles heard of the person and work of Jesus Christ. They heard that he was not some mere man, but God in the flesh, who was handed over for suffering and death. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And that this Jesus is now both Lord and Christ. And upon hearing this good news, the command is to repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Returning to our earlier questions, I want for us to flush out the implications of this great event of Pentecost for we see in our reading this morning that one, the gospel is for everyone. This message that they preached. Two, that the gospel elicits a response. And three, The gospel has no power apart from the Holy Spirit. The great message of the church is the gospel of the Lord Jesus. It's not a teaching about what we think about this problem or that. It's about Jesus Christ. 
For when Christ and him crucified is proclaimed, therein lies the answer to the needs of all men and women. And that is what is preached to this international gathering. There's no attempt to address the pressing needs of the Elamites or what it is that is bothering the Phrygians or the Arabians, but simply the message of the saving work of Jesus. The disciples start with the living God. They don't start with the problems of men. In fact, we have little problem understanding people, their predicament and condition. We have a tremendous problem understanding God and who he is, especially as it concerns salvation. On a plane flight recently, I found out how to spell judgment in a new way. It's T-S-A. And as I was heading through security, there was a lady who was probably in her mid-80s who had purchased a bottle of water that hadn't been opened up, and she was clearly frazzled. And then the agent came up to her and said, I'm going to have to take that bottle of water away from you because it's a security risk. She played it with him, but you don't understand. I'm thirsty, and I haven't even opened it. And he said, I'm sorry, ma'am, that's the rule. And he took the bottle, and he threw it in the wastebasket, And it dawned on me, this doesn't make any sense. And I asked the agent, I said, so why did you take, why do you take the water bottles? And he said, because they could be an explosive device. And I said, and then you put them in the trash can right here? (laughs) That makes no sense. People are constantly trying to extricate themselves from danger. We're all looking to save ourselves, only did I find that our actions are simply throwing a water bottle into the basket that's right next to us. Our efforts are for naught. No, the condition is the same for everyone. Everyone is in need of salvation. Everyone is in need of relationship with God. The gospel is not specific to a certain type of person. It's for everyone. A message that only appeals to a certain class or a certain type is not the Christian gospel. And so devout men from every nation under heaven, every walk of life, every socioeconomic condition heard in their own tongues the mighty works of God. The gospel is for everyone, and so it should be declared to everyone. But what happens when the gospel is preached? What are its consequences? What are the reactions? Well, the reaction amongst the crowd, at least in the aftermath of the preaching, is twofold. Some are amazed and perplexed, wondering, what does this mean? They can't make sense of this manifestation of the Holy Spirit. But the other is a negative reaction. Others mocked the disciples, even mocked God, by accusing the Christians of being drunk. The gospel is a foreign concept. It's not an idea that comes to us naturally or readily. The whole idea of the gospel is that it is something or rather someone from the outside coming into our lives. It's an alien work. So it's no wonder that people are bewildered by it. You may not know what to think of the Lord Jesus. 
and what it means to have him as your Lord and Savior. I encounter people who wonder, well, I hear you say that God loves me, but God wouldn't love me if he knew of my past or even my present. God couldn't love anyone like me. I'm bewildered and perplexed by this gospel. Or I encounter people who feel that, well, I'm doing okay. It's others that really need God, and there'll come a day maybe when I need the gospel, and uh, then I'll tune in. But, but right now, the gospel is for someone else. I really don't understand that I need it at this moment. But beyond being bewildered, others scoffed. This, too, was a common reaction to the message of the gospel. Have you heard the gospel of Jesus Christ in an intelligible way and yet are bewildered? Or are you one of the scoffers? Regardless, we're all forced to reckon with this Jesus who is present with us today by the power of the Holy Spirit. And what are we to make of the Holy Spirit and his work? Are we to scoff at him too? Are we to think that he's only for those who take their religion seriously, but not those of us who take a light grip on the Lord Jesus? For if we were to receive the power of the Holy Spirit, what would people make of us? We would go from scoffer to scoffee. Heaven forbid we scoff at the gospel. I was at a conference some years ago. There were about 500 folks there, and the speaker was teaching on evangelism and and how we articulate the gospel to our changing world. Uh, And then he started to belittle a certain gospel evangelistic method, and that is gospel tracts. You know, those little paper things that you find on counters and laid about in public that lay out the gospel message. And he began to make fun of them in such a way that I and pretty much everyone else at the conference joined in the laughter, scoffing at these gospel tracts. And then he asked rhetorically, after all, who's ever been converted by a gospel tract? And one man stood up and he raised his hand and said, God used a gospel tract to convert me. And we were all silenced. Are we so arrogant to believe that the Holy Spirit will only work through certain mediums? We all have our choices. We all have our preferences. But woe be unto us who confuse taste with truth. We become no better than those who are flippant about the very work of God in the day of Pentecost. For it is in the power of the Holy Spirit and in Him alone that the Lord God does His work upon us and in the world. Which brings us to our final point. The gospel has no power apart from the Holy Spirit. Let's remember who these 120 disciples are. They're nobodies. They're tax collectors, rebels, prostitutes, Sinners, even notorious sinners. John Knox was right when he said, God gave his Holy Spirit to simple men and women in great abundance. 
These men and women went from hiding in the upper room, denying the Lord Jesus, running away, leaving Jesus to his fate. They were brash, inarticulate. And in nowhere in the Gospels do we read of the great sermons of the disciples. Yes, they went and ministered in the name of Christ, but when their words are recorded, there is some surprise when they get it right. And even then, that rightness is short-lived. But we go from that to the day of Pentecost, and what a difference. What is the difference? The difference is the Holy Spirit. Now, we know that the Holy Spirit was present in the Old Testament. He was there in the beginning when God created the world. But not in the same measure in which he came at Pentecost. This manifestation was unlike anything else the Bible gives witness to. What we see in the New Testament from Pentecost to beyond is that when you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, when you look to him and him alone for salvation, when you vacate the throne of your life so that he might be king, then the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within you. You have become the spiritual temple of God. The coming of the Holy Spirit, Simon Kistemacher says, ushers in a new era, for he comes to take up his dwelling with men and women, not temporarily, but forever. But does the Holy Spirit simply show up at conversion? And then that's that? Is Pentecost a one-time event, a one-off thing never to be repeated again? Or are there moments when the Spirit intervenes in our lives and in the life of the church in such a profound way as this? I'm not speaking of a second blessing, but the tangible sense that God is with his people. I believe that the testimony of the scriptures and also that of the church answers Yes, that there have been times when God has poured out his spirit in a manner disproportionate to the everyday Christian life. It happened at the time of the Reformation. It happened in the great Wesleyan revivals. It happened in the East African revival, and it happens today. In the journals of George Whitfield, the great preacher of the Second Great Awakening, writes about a preaching moment he had in Sheltenham, England. He said suddenly during a sermon, God the Lord came down amongst us. Now, George Whitfield, when he preached, surely was always aware of the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. But there were variations in his ministry. And there in Sheltenham, something exceptional happened so exceptional that he writes it down in his journal. God came down. Yes, they'd been enjoying the presence and the blessing of God before, but not like this. Something wonderful happened. God was in their very midst. He had come down. And that is exactly what happens in revival. Suddenly, Martin Lloyd-Jones writes of these moments. Those present in the meeting become aware that someone has come amongst them, 
They are aware of a glory. They are aware of a presence. They cannot define it. They cannot describe it. They cannot put into words. They just know that they have never known anything like this before. Sometimes they describe it as days of heaven on earth. They really feel that they are in heaven. They have forgotten time. They are beyond that. Time has no longer any meaning for them, nor any real existence, for they are in a spiritual realm. God has come down amongst them and has filled the place and the people with a sense of his glorious presence. This is what happens when God hears the cry and plea and sends his blessing. For the disciples waited and they prayed and they pleaded. And God answered their prayers and he showed up. I've been aware of these moments even in my own life. It's not just my spirit leaping for joy. But in worship services and in gatherings of Christians and even by myself. It has nothing to do with the style of worship. But all of a sudden you get so lost in the truth of God and his word that you get taken up as Hebrews talks about. And you lose any sense of what's going on and you feel the very presence of God. A way that I often feel it seems like as if you've ever seen a father with his child walking down the road, maybe taking them to school or maybe even coming into the advent. And if you've ever been one of those who's held the hand of a child or witnessed that, you think that's such a lovely thing and it warms your heart and and makes you feel so lovely. And in the same way, when you enter into a relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ, indeed, your hand is in the strong grip of his grace. He's holding on to you as you walk together through life and you feel his love. But if you've ever seen that father scoop up his child whose hand he's holding and fold them into his arms and to hold them close, that is what it's like to feel to be caught up in the Holy Spirit of God. That God is not simply holding your hand, but he has folded you into his arms. And you felt his presence and his love. And you've never been more certain of anything else in your life. Because you know who the Lord Jesus is. And you know God as your heavenly father. For he's taken you up in his arms. But as I say, these are exceptional moments in the life of the believer. In the life of the Christian church. But even so... The Holy Spirit within you should give the Christian an assurance of God's great love for us and his presence in our lives, an ongoing empowering of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. Our Heavenly Father is looking to bring more sons and daughters into his kingdom, into his family by the power of his Holy Spirit. That is what Pentecost is all about. This great event shows us That the gospel is for everyone, no matter our station in life. The gospel elicits a response. I mean, you see that there are those who are bewildered and scoffers, but by the end of chapter 2, we see that 3,000 were added to the church that day, which means there were those who were bewildered and were scoffing that came to know the Lord Jesus because the Holy Spirit had called them into relationship. But above all, the gospel has no power apart from the Holy Spirit.
And so this morning, if you've never entered into that relationship, God the Father holds out his hand to you right now. Take it. Take it now and be in the strong grip of his grace. And for those of us who walk with him, who are his children, for those of you this morning who have taken his hand for the first time, pray earnestly for God to send his Holy Spirit so that we might be swept up into his arms. Pray that we would not only be baptized by water, but with fire from above, and that we might burn for the Lord Jesus. Whatever your spiritual situation, seek him. Stir yourself up to call upon his name. Take hold upon him. Plead with him as your father, as your maker, as your potter, as your guide, as your God. Plead his own promises. Cry unto him and say in the words of William Cooper, O rend the heavens, come quickly down, and make a thousand hearts thine own. Let us pray. God, we pray that in the quietness of this place that you would manifest in our lives the presence of your Holy Spirit, that we would be not left to ourselves, but that we would be filled with fire from above, that the gospel indeed would take deep root in our own hearts, that we would be swept up into your arms, but also that your name would be known to the very ends of the earth, that you might gather your family together your sons and daughters. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.